Talk Recorded live. Hello. Welcome to Christagonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, February 11th, 2012. Thank you for listening and praise Yahweh, the God of lights. Tonight I'm going to present a paper I wrote some years ago. It's one of the first papers I wrote on German origins. It's Classical Records of the Scythians, Parthians, and Related Tribes. It's a companion paper to a a paper I presented here a few weeks ago that I had written called Herodotus, Scythians, Persians, and Prophecy. It's important that we understand the historic links between the ancient Israelites of Scripture, those Israelites who were deported by the Assyrians, and the Scythians, and and the Parthians. I consider these papers prerequisites to my German origin series of of six essays, and and, um, I had hoped to write a seventh one day. Clifton Emmeheiser is still waiting for me to do that. I'm sorry. Well, well, um, I'll repeat some of the things that I say here in in that series, I'm sure, but but I, I pray that they're worth repeating. It's important that we understand these concepts because the Jew has corrupted history. The Jew, in maintaining his own um, false identity, insisting that the people that we know as Jews today are the Israelites of the Old Testament, they've actually corrupted our entire history. What they've also done is they've basically taken classical education out of our schools Where, um, up until about 100 years ago, Herodotus and Diodorus Siculus and Strabo and and all the other classical writers I quote, that these men were were very well revered in academic circles. These works were studied all the time. The things that these men said were were pretty much common knowledge. And, And if we add men like Plutarch, and, and Suetonius and, and some of the Roman writers to the mix, educated Europeans for a thousand years at least studied these writers and, and understood classical history. And, and, of course, we know they were far from perfect, but Europe was in high, a, a highly advanced and a highly moral society when the Jews threw it over in, in the... Um, in the days of Napoleon and, and the French Revolution. Now, now, of course, not all European re- Europeans were educated, but the, the Jewish ideal of educating all of our people equally has basically destroyed our educational system. It hasn't helped us. We should realize as a people that Not everybody is able to be educated for 12 years. We're basically wasting the lives of our children. If we look at um, traditional European culture, most people only went to a school, if they could afford it at all, for three, four, five years. They learned reading, writing, and arithmetic. After that, they learned a trade. Most of us, and a lot of us I'm sure understand this, would be better off if we hadn't gone to an elementary school and, and, and basically learned um, 
New World Jewish propaganda for 12 years and had that forced on us. Most of us that do not desire to pursue, to pursue an academic field are wasting our time beyond five or six years of school. That's just a, a bare fact of, of life. And we'd be much better off spending our youth learning a trade, which is what our ancestors did until the compulsory 12-year education agenda of the Jews and, and the Rockefellers and, and the other progressives of the 19th century eventually prevailed. We, we went to school for four or five years, and, and then we went off to, um, to learn a trade. And if we were fortunate, we were able to obtain books and continue our education on our own. And education pursued privately is usually pursued by people who have an, an interest in a particular field. And if you have an interest in a particular field to that point, that, then that's when you're going to be most productive is when you want to do something, when you want to achieve something. And, and this 12-year education that's being forced on every child today is, is in, in many cases, it's anti-productive, and, and teenage boys would be better off learning a trade, which is historically what we did. But for those people who wanted and, and who had the ability to pursue a, a higher academic discipline, these classical historians, they were the curriculum. And the philosophers and the Bible and, and higher education in Europe for a thousand years centered around the Bible. That was the curriculum. Plutarch and Strabo and Diodorus, they were the curriculum. And, and the Jew has destroyed this out of our educational system and disconnected us from the development of our civilization. Most people today, they, they don't know anything that happened beyond their, their own memory 10, 15 years ago, tops, 20 years ago, tops. It, it's disgusting. It's disgraceful. The founding fathers of this nation, they were all well-schooled. And Josephus and Diodorus Siculus and Strabo and Herodotus and Thucydides and, and, and Plutarch and all of the other classical writings. Our historic experience is, is um, understanding our historical experience in the correct context is, is critical to our survival. We would have a much better, surer um, idea of ourselves and, and how to function and how a society should function and um, the, the various poli political methods and, and um, The, the results in history of political experimentation, well, we would have a much better idea of life and, and life's experience if we studied the classics, and we no longer do that. And, and that's to our detriment as a society, but it's to the advantage of the Jew and, and international Jewry, which seeks to enslave all peoples, and it's much easier to enslave ignorant people. Once we um, examine the classics, 
who we are is, to me, it's beyond doubt. And I hope to be able to continue establishing that in these presentations and, and in the essays on org far into the future, Yahweh willing. This is classical records of the origins of the Scythians, Parthians, and related tribes. It, it's not a very long paper. It's kind of concise. I, I added some passages to it today. Hopefully we'll fill out an hour. In the preface to Josephus' wars, wars of the Judeans, this is, the historian explains that he originally wrote the book in the language of our country, which is Hebrew or perhaps Aramaic, and he sent it to the upper barbarians, among whom he then names as the Parthians, Babylonians, the remotest Arabians, and we'll define that in a, in a few minutes, and as he says, those of our nation beyond the Euphrates with the Adiabene. I'm going to read the entire passage. This is the opening of Josephus' Wars of the Judeans, right from the beginning. Whereas the war which the Judeans made with the Romans has been the greatest of all those, not only that have been in our times, but in a manner of those who ever were heard of, both of those with, wherein cities have fought against cities or nations against nations, while some men who are not concerned in the, in the affairs themselves have gotten together vain and contradictory stories by hearsay and have written them down after a sophisticated manner. Josephus is criticizing the other historians of this war. And while those who were, pre who were there pre present have given false accounts of things, and this either out of a humor of flattery to the Romans or of hatred towards the Judeans, and while their writings contain sometimes accusations and sometimes encomiums, but nowhere the accurate truth of the facts, I have proposed to myself, for the sake of such as live under the government of the Romans, to translate those books into the Greek tongue, which I, Josephus, formerly composed in the language of our country and sent to the upper barbarians. The importance of this is crucial. I, Joseph, the son of Matthias, by birth a Hebrew, a priest also, and one who at first fought against the Romans myself, he was a general, and was forced to be present at what was done afterward, and the author of this work. Now, at the time when this great concussion of affairs happened, the affairs of the Romans were themselves in great disorder. Those Judeans also, who were for seditions, then arose when the times were disturbed. They were also in a flourishing condition for strength and riches, insomuch that the affairs of the East were then exceedingly tumultuous. While some hoped for gain and others were afraid of loss in such troubles, for the Judeans hoped 
that all of their nation, which were beyond the Euphrates, would have raised an insurrection together with them. The Gauls also in the neighborhood of the Romans were in motion, and the Celts were not quiet. But all was in disorder after the death of Nero. And the opportunity now offered induced many to aim at the royal power. And the soldiers effected change out of the hopes of getting money. I thought it, therefore, an absurd thing to see the truth falsified in affairs of such great consequence, and to take no notice of it, but to allow those Greeks and Romans that were not in the wars to be ignorant of these things, and to read either flatteries or fictions, while the Parthians and the Babylonians and the remotest Arabians and those of our nation beyond the Euphrates with the Adiabene, by my means, meaning Josephus's means, his original work which he wrote in Aramaic and sent to all those people, knew accurately both how the war began, what miseries it brought upon us, and after what manner it ended. Let me say that first that the disturbances in Rome which Joseph is, is talking about is the death of Nero. And when Nero died, Galba had became the emperor. And, and he was the emperor for only a short time, and Otho had, had, had conducted a revolt against him and had him slain, and Otho became the emperor. And Otho was only the emperor for six months. And Vitellius had Otho slain, and Vitellius became the emperor. And Vitellius, I think, was only the emperor for about three months. And then Vespasian came to Rome with his soldiers. And, and it seems to me that, that the man who, who could raise the, the, the most forces would become the emperor. The soldiers wanted Vespasian to be the emperor. And they killed Vitellius and made Vespasian the emperor. This is 67 to 68 AD. It's in the middle of the... Um, that the insurrection in Judea, which lasted for about five years and ended in 70 AD, it, it, um, as turmoil occurred in Rome, the rebellion in Judea got louder. The Judeans feeling that they had an advantage because of the turmoil in Rome. So that was the year of four emperors. It is fitting to examine this paragraph from Josephus. What he is obviously telling us here is that he wrote his book on the wars of the Judeans in his own native tongue and sent it to the upper barbarians so that they would know the causes and the issue of the Judean war against the Romans. Josephus both expected that these upper barbarians would have an interest in those wars and also that they would be able to read his own native tongue. That's why he wrote it in Aramaic or, or Hebrew and sent it to them. 
He only then translated his work into Greek, so that Greeks and Romans could also read about this war, as he explains, from a non-Roman perspective, which was probably something which was pretty rare in those days. Josephus then tells us here that his writing and distributing the original Hebrew version, which he wrote, Wars of the Judeans, that the Parthians, the Babylonians, and the remotest Arabians, which are all on Josephus' side of the Euphrates, and those of our nation beyond the Euphrates with the Adiabene, by my means, knew accurately both how the war begun, what miseries it brought upon us, and what, after what manner it ended. Now, now, let me say as another side note that the Edomite factor here is not really a factor to Josephus, right? Josephus understood that the Judea had absorbed a large number of Edomites. He understood that Herod was, and, and the family of Herod were Edomites, but he still saw the nation as Judea, and, and he was still pretty blind as to the consequences of that. And that's just a fact, and, and, and that could be found readily by reading his histories. He, even though the New Testament writers did understand the consequences of that, Josephus himself, although I believe he was a very good and sincere man, he was blind to the consequences of half the Judeans being Edomites. He really was. And that's probably the providence of God. But Josephus is a very important witness to us concerning the period between the Testaments and the period throughout the first century after the time of Christ. All things have to be examined in, perspe in, examined in perspective, right? Except for the Parthians, Josephus's designations here are geographical where it is clear from the pages of his antiquities that many of the Israelites of the Babylonian deportation still dwelt around Babylonia in his time, and he, he mentions them in his 15th book, in the third chapter. And this would include the remotest part of Arabia, which was adjacent to Babylonia. Just because he called them re the remotest Arabians doesn't mean that they were necessarily Arabs that he was referring to, right? He was referring to the extreme other side of Arabia, which is where Babylonia was located, and we see in Peter's first epistle at 1 Peter 5.13 that Peter was in Babylonia when he wrote that epistle. And Babylonia, Babylon was still a city at this time. It was until the 6th or 7th century AD, even though it fell into disuse and it was no longer a viable port, and it eventually was abandoned it was still a city at the time of Josephus. It just didn't have the importance that it once had. Speaking of the time of the first Herod, Josephus says this, for there were not a few, ten thousands of this people, meaning the Judeans of the captivity, that had been carried captives and dwelt around Babylonia, there were certain Judeans, and, and if um, I had to make a religious comment, I would believe that these people were still what were mostly the bad figs, right? Uh, the, the bad figs of Jeremiah's vision. 
Well, well, there were still many people identifying themselves as Judeans, and there must have been some good people there, or Peter would not have been there trying to bring these people the gospel. And they were still there in Josephus' time. Josephus also attests that many Israelites of the Assyrian deportations were beyond the Euphrates until now where they were an immense multitude and not to be estimated by numbers. He says that in the 11th book of his Antiquities. And in addition to them, there were the people of Adiabene, and Adiabene is that part of Assyria, which according to Strabo and his geography, is not in Mesopotamia, but which consists of the plains beyond the Tigris River, bordering Babylonia to the south and Armenia to the north. And that can be seen in Strabo's 16th book in the first chapter. Media, the ancient nation of the Medes, borders Adiabene on the east. Herodotus listed Parthians among those who fought under the Persians in Xerxes' famous invasion of Greece, circa 480 B.C. And like the Arians and the Sardians, he says that they were equipped like the Bactrians in all respects in his seventh book, 66th chapter. The Parthians had a district immediately east of Media, southeast of the Caspian Sea, which they obtained by force. Strabo says of Parthia that in the Persian and Macedonian periods, in addition to its smallness, it is thickly wooded and mountainous and also poverty-stricken. And that at that early time, its people paid their tribute along with the Hyrcanians to the west. Strabo's 11th book, chapter 9. Strabo then says that Arsaces, a Scythian, with some of the Dahi, invaded Parthia and conquered it. In, in other words, they invaded that land which eventually became known as Parthia and conquered it. Now at the outset, Strabo says, Arsakes was weak, being continually at war with those who had, deprived, who had been deprived by him of their territory. Both he himself and his successors. But later, they grew so strong always taking neighboring territory through successes in warfare, that finally they established themselves as lords of the whole country inside the Euphrates, the Parthian Empire. That's Strabo's 11th book, chapter 9. Elsewhere, Strabo tells us that the Dahi, along with the Massagete and the Sake, are all Scythians, where he says... Now the greater part of the Scythians, beginning at the Caspian Sea, are called Dahi. But those who are situated more to the east than these are named Massagete and Sake. That's Strabo's 11th book, chapter 8. So we see that the Parthians of the Parthian Empire were Scythians. And Josephus surely indicates to us that they were Israelites. He wrote his book of the wars, 
so that the Parthians could read it in the same language that Josephus wrote it in, in his native language, so that they would know the outcome of what was happening and the reasons why it was happening during the Judean War against the Romans. In the second century BC, the Parthians arose over the, over the entire Eastern world, ruling over much of the old Persian Empire, a position they held for about 400 years. All of their kings, according to Strabo, were given the surname Arsaces, where Strabo states that such is also the custom among the Parthians, for all of the kings are called Arsaces, although personally one king is called Herodes, another Phrates, and another something else, meaning that they had personal names as well as this name that they were given when they became king, which was really a title, right? Arsaces. And that's Strabo's 15th book, chapter 1, section 36. The word Arsaces seems to come from the words are and saka, apparently meaning the highest of the saka. While the Euphrates was generally the border between the Parthian and the Roman empires, often the two empires clashed along it. They fought many battles there. And the Parthians were at various times involved in the affairs of Syria and the affairs of Judea. And, and that's even mentioned by, by Josephus in the 14th book of his Antiquities or, or the first book of his Wars. The Parthians seem to have a personal political interest in those areas. Roman Parthia also often contended for Armenia, where Rome eventually prevailed. And Josephus describes that war in Antiquities Book 18, but it's also mentioned in Strabo and Theodore Siculus and other historians. While the Assyrians resettled various groups of deported Israelites along the northern frontiers of their empire, as we see in 2 Kings chapter 17, chapter 17, verse 6, which included much of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin also, the 40, the, those 200,000 people from those 46 fenced cities of Judah that the Assyrians had taken under Sennacherib, right? In 2 Kings, chapter 18, chapter 18, verse 19. And our biblical records here are far from complete due to the circumstances of the time. The Assyrian records themselves tell us that these tribes began migrating to the north nearly as soon as they were settled. And, and I have a citation here in my paper. I, I make a reference to E. Raymond Katz, Missing Links Discovered in Assyrian Tablets, a book which I have on the shelf behind me. And, and I was looking through it today, and I, I didn't find anything that I really wanted to quote from it, but I will say that E. Raymond Katz had access to, um, to books that I wish I had access to now, right? E. Raymond Katz had access to books, notably those such as, um, and, and I'll name one, Ancient Assyrian, Ancient Records of Assyria and Babylonia by somebody named D.D. Luckenville, who was an, an, a noted Assyriologist and had translated many of the Assyrian inscriptions. 
many more than, than are in the um, ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament volume, which I like to quote. But some of D.D. Luckinbill's work shows up in, in that book. And Luckinbill's ancient records of Assyria and Babylonia are, are critical to understanding some of the links between the deported Israelites and the people known as the Scythians and, and Parthians in later times. E. Raymond Captain, his missing links discovered in Assyrian tablets, discusses some of the Assyrian records which identify the Israelites dispersed throughout the region and their later movements. And I'm not, um, it, it's not my point to replace E. Raymond Katz's work, but only to augment it, right? I am going to read another record of those same movements, and that's found in 2 Esdras. And, and I've read this here before. It's 2 Esdras, which is also called by scholars 4 Esdras, and it's chapter 13, verses 39 through 50. Here from the King James Apocrypha. And whereas thou sawest that he gathered another peaceable multitude unto him, that sheep he had in another fold, right? That this, the he here is Yahweh himself. Those are the ten tribes, which were carried away prisoners out of their own land in the time of Hosea the king, the last king of Israel, right? Not the prophet whom Shalmanesar, the king of Assyria, led away captive. And he carried them over the waters. And so came they into another land. But they took this counsel among themselves, that they would leave the multitude of the heathen and go forth into a further country where never mankind dwell. That they might there keep their statutes, which they never kept in their own land. And they entered into the Euphrates by the narrow places of the river. For the Most High then showed signs for them, and he held still the flood, meaning the river, till they were passed over. For through that country there was a great way to go, namely of a year and a half. And the same region is called Arsareth. Arsareth, it's important to note that. Then dwelt they there until the latter time. And now when they shall begin to come, the highest shall stay the springs of the stream again that they may go through. Therefore sawest thou the multitude with peace, but those that be left behind of thy people are they that are found within my borders. Now when he destroys the multitude of the nations that are gathered together, he shall defend his people that remain. These are repetitions of the promises and the prophets. It's, it's nothing that we don't read in Ezekiel chapter 38, right? And then he shall show them great wonders. This is the exact route into Europe known to be taken by the Scythians according to the Greek records. There is a river running through the western Ukraine. I think I said that this river ran through modern Hungary a few weeks ago, and I erred my, my faulty memory, right? I must be getting old. There's a river that runs through western Ukraine today called the Suret River. It's called the Suret River to this very day. The term Arsareth may very well be taken to refer to the mountains of the Suret River in Hebrew. It is also near the ancient homeland for a time of many of the Chimerians 
just north of the Black Sea, which is why the land bordering the sea in that area is still called the Crimea. The Crimea, even by all ancient Greek accounts, is named for the Cimmerians because that was one of their first ancient homelands once the Greeks became acquainted with them. They migrated down the Danube. It took them a couple of hundred years to get to the other end of the Danube. But without a doubt, these people migrated down the Danube and were known as the Kimri in Germany and the Galatahi to the Romans. Some of them crossed into Britain. It took them 400 years to make it from Britain. From Assyria to Britain, roughly 400 years. That's not fantastic. It, it's not that the movement, and, and we will establish this historically in, in short time. The movement of the Scythians, as they migrated around the Black Sea into Europe, it's not fantastic at all that they could make it from Mesopotamia and, and, and the Caspian and Black Sea area and the Caucasus Mountains to Gaul and Spain and Germany in 400 years. If you look at the settlement of the United States, where, where it really wasn't... A, uh, okay, Plymouth was established in, um, in, in 1620, perhaps, or, or thereabouts, in, in Massachusetts, Plymouth Colony. The first establishments, I, I know Jamestown was a few years earlier, but the first successful establishments in the South were not long after that. And by 1650, New York and New Jersey were, were began to be settled by the Dutch and then by the English. Well, well, by 1850, within 200 years, within 200 years, our people in wagons, the same way the Scythians did it, the same way the Cimmerians did it, were all the way to California. So, so it's it's not incredible at all that our people had um, migrated across Europe in 200 years, or in 300 years, or in 400, 400 years actually. It, it's um, 400 years by the time the, the the Cimmerians crossed the Channel and and landed in Britain as the Cymri and ran into the Bretons who were there before them. But it wasn't even 300 years from the time that the children of Israel were deported to the cities of the Medes to the time that the Gauls sacked northern Italy. And they were the same people. Speaking about the Cimmerians, this branch of the Israelites, the Cimmerians, ravaged much of Anatolia and destroyed ancient Phrygia. That happened right around 600 B.C. before crossing into Europe and settling north of Thrace and around the Black Sea. And many of them also migrated westward where they became known as the Celts. The Cimmerians, and, and let me talk about that because there were already Celts. And anthropologists recognized that there were two groups of people called Celts. And they called them the, the Proto-Celts and the Celts. Or sometimes they call them P-Celts and Q-Celts, dividing them by language. The coast of Gaul, or, or modern-day France, much of the Spanish peninsula 
Britain and Ireland were all settled by the Phoenicians. That can be established from classical history. We have done that here. Those people are the proto-Celts. The first waves of the descendants of the Israelites, the Cimmerians, the Kimri, they are the Cymri of the Assyrian records, referring to the children of Israel. And in Greek, they became known as the Kimmeroi. The first waves left Asia not long after they were deported, perhaps about 100 to 110 years. Their language would have been a lot closer to that language which the Hebrews had, who had departed from Israel years before by sea and settled in the West, arriving in Western Europe by sea. Those first Israelites who departed from the main body in Asia and crossed Europe by land would have had a much more similar language. And there we have the Proto-Celts and the Celts, or the P-Celts and the Q-Celts, as linguists distinguish them. The Cimmerians, who left Mesopotamia at a very early time, account for the pockets of what are considered Celtic-speaking peoples who were scattered along the regions of the Danube in diverse places in the Balkans near the Black Sea, and they are identified as Celts in the Hellenistic period, and they're identified as Celts by linguists and studiers of the Indo-European question today realized that there were pockets of Celtic-speaking people all along the Danube, except that the Indo-European, the, the people who study Indo-European migrations today, they have it all wrong, right? That They actually believe that these Celts started in the West and came to the East, and, and just the opposite is true. Here we shall discuss the larger portions of the dispersion of the Israelites, the Scythians who stayed behind in Asia for some centuries before many of their own descendants began crossing into Europe as the Germanic-speaking tribes. The only, dis the only way to distinguish the Germanic-speaking tribes from the Celts is by language. Racially, they were absolutely homogenous, and all the classics attest to that. In my previous essay concerning these people, Herodotus, Scythians, Persians, and Prophecy, presented here a few weeks ago, it was shown that the Scythians fulfilled the roles which the Hebrew prophets had forecast concerning the children of Israel. This discussion is meant to complement that one. In his Library of History, Book 2, Chapter 43, Theodorus Siculus says this of the Scythians, he says, but now in turn, we shall discuss the Scythians who inhabit the country bordering upon India. This people originally possessed little territory, but later, as they gradually increased in power, they seized much territory by reason of their deeds of might and their bravery and advanced their nation to great leadership and renown. At first, then, they dwelt on the Araxes River, imagine that. Altogether, few in number, 
and despised because of their lack of renown. But since one of their early kings was warlike and of unusual skill as a general, they acquired territory in the mountains as far as the Caucasus and in the steppes along the ocean and Lake Mahiotis. Lake Mahiotis is what we know as the Sea of Azov today. It's that small sea just north of the Black Sea. And the rest of that country, as far as the Tanais River, the Tanais River in modern times is called the Don. It's the river that flows down through the central Ukraine and empties into the, the Black Sea. But sometime later, the descendants of these kings subdued much of the territory beyond the Tanais River, as far as Thrace. Thrace, of course, is just north of Greece. Today, it's known as Bulgaria. For this people increased to great strength and had notable kings, one whom gave his name to the Sakae, another to the Masigere, another to the Aramaspi, and several other tribes received their names in like manner. Now, now Diodorus had a fanciful account uh, of the, um, the naming of the various related Scythian tribes. However, that, that he is surely accurate in the description of the origins and the growth of these people. And he corroborates Herodotus concerning their relationship as Herodotus also attested, and the locations where they are found, as Herodotus also attested. Now the Sea of Azov, by Diodorus, is said to belong to the Scythians, and that is where the Crimea is found, and all ancient accounts tell us that the Crimea is named after the Cimmerians. Crimea, Kimmeroi, it, it's not a far stretch. The Araxis River was the ancient boundary between Media and Armenia. Herodotus, describing the Persian king Cyrus's expedition against the Massagete, and this is a famous war, describes the Caspian Sea. The Araxis River, which empties into it from the west, and the Caucasus Mountains, which bind the Caspian there. The Caucasus Mountains border the Caspian Sea on the east. And he places Cyrus's expedition in this very district. Herodotus describes the Massagete, where he says that in their dress and mode of living, they resemble the Scythians, and as he says later, that the Scythians carry their favorite weapon, the battle axe. Later, Herodotus describes the Persian king Darius's expedition against the Scythians, Darius had to travel a little further. Where to get to the Scythians, Darius had to cross the Bosporus. And then going through Thrace, he had to cross the Danube to attack the Scythians. And that's described in Herodotus's fourth book, chapter 97, or section 97. Herodotus also described how the Scythians, who were now above the Danube, had migrated into Europe from Asia. And that's in Herodotus' fourth book, sections 11 and 48. Just as Diodorus Siculus also tells us that the Scythians of Europe migrated from Asia.
He also says that the Scythians of the East, who were once subject to the Persians, and the Scythians of the Caucasus Mountains, and the Scythians of Europe, were all related, as Theodore Siculus tells us. Herodotus says of the Scythians that the Persians call them Sake, since that is the name which they give to all Scythians. Book 7, Section 64. Strabo says only that the Sake are of Scythian stock, but elsewhere that the Dahi, the Massagete, and the Sake are Scythians, and that the inhabitants of Bactriana and Sogdiana, districts which border upon India, it's not Scythians themselves are ruled over by Scythians, and also that the AC, the Tocharians, and the Saka Raleigh, where we see that name Saka again, right? And these people are found east of the Caspian Sea and near to Tibet, appear to be Scythians, and that's in Strabo's 11th book. Note the occurrence of the word of that Saka word in so many names related to the Scythian tribes. We see it in the word Arsakes, of course, Massagati or the Massagete, Sakarali, and also Sakasene. Sakasene was the principal and most fertile district of Armenia. There was no Armenia in the time of the Assyrian deportations of the Israelites. It is apparent that the name may have evolved from a Hebrew phrase, which means mountain regions, and I will cite Strong's Concordance. We will turn to Strong's Hebrew number 2022, and that is Har, or R. Sometimes the H is just dropped. And the H is just dropped because the Greeks didn't actually have a, a letter that the H, that represented the H sound, they only had a, a, a hash mark, sort of an apostrophe, right? And, and that's why in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, we see Hagar is Agar, and we see that Hosea is Osi, O-S-E-E, and A-G-A-R, rather than Hosea or in Hagar. That H was often dropped, by the people who rendered the Greek names into English because the Greeks really didn't have a letter for the H sound. Har, a mountain or a range of hills, is the way that Strong's defines that word. And then mini, or the mania part of Armenia, and I'll refer to Strong's numbers 4480 and 44. 82 for that. 4480 is mini. It could be min or it could be mini, right? M-I-N-N-E-Y. And properly it means a part of. 4482, man or many, is a part or a portion. If we put R and many together, we come up with Armenia, and we come up with a phrase that means the mountainous parts or the mountainous portion, the hilly parts of the land. And that is where I believe the word Armenia originated. 
in our Hebrew ancestors, the Scythians who settled there, the Sake who settled there. And that's also why I believe that the word Arsakes, that word Ar meaning a mountain, but it can also mean a peak or a summit. And, and that word Arsakes being the name that the Scythians, the Parthians especially, used for their kings, Arsakes would simply mean the chief or the top of the Saka the king of the Saka. In earlier times, Armenia was occupied by a tribe called the Urartu, who seemed to be related to the Medes. The upper portions of it were occupied by the Maski and the Tabani, and this is attested to by Strabo and by other historians. The Maski and Tabani are no longer known after a time, and I believe that they went up through the Caucasus Mountains with the Scythians and settled in what we know today as Russia, where we have Moscow and Tobolsk. These tribes, the Moscow and the Tabani, are the Meshek and Tubal of Genesis 10-2, and they are found in company with the Medes. They are all Japhethite tribes. That's the times before it was Armenia. It wasn't Armenia, until the Saka or Scythia settled there. Speaking of the time around the fall of Assyria, Herodotus tells us that the Scythians conquered all of Asia. That's in his first book, section 104. Strabo talks about that same thing. But Strabo relates that in ancient times, greater Armenia ruled all of Asia. That's in his 11th book, chapter 13. Both men are correct. Where we have seen from Diodorus Siculus that the Scythian origins along the Araxis River, in part of what later became known as Armenia, and their presence there in Persian times, as Herodotus describes that expedition of Cyrus in the war which he waged against the Massagete in that very, very place, Strabo tells us that Sacassene a district in Armenia was so named for the Sake who dwelt there. So we see that Armenia was one of the first great Scythian nations from the deported children of Israel, because that's where they were deported to. While this entire eastern world at one time was predominantly Caucasian, Adamic or white, now it's been overrun and mongrelized by Arabs, Edomite Jews, Turks, and Mongols over the past 1,500 years. The Armenians seem to have never forgotten their Israelite background. And an Armenian quarter was maintained in Jerusalem even in the 20th century. The Armenians, the original white Armenians, accepted Christianity before the time of Constantine, before the Romans accepted Christianity, and this was noted by them in later accounts. If you look on 19th and early 20th century maps of Jerusalem, you'll see that Jerusalem until recent times had what was called an Armenian quarter. However, much like the Jews, at least many of today's Armenians cannot truly be considered as white Israelites of the original stock since they have a readily identifiable Arab admixture. But Armenia was at one time a great 
Scythian Israelite nation 2,500 years ago, right? In Strabo's time, sandwiched between Armenia to the south and the Caucasus Mountains to the north, were three small districts occupying much of the land known today as Georgia. These are Colchis, which bordered on the Black Sea, Iberia, which was landlocked, and Albania, which bordered on the Caspian Sea. And we see Scotland, many years later, was called the Alban Isle, right? And we see in Albania, in the Caucasus, which was at one time a white nation. It's a Muslim nation now, but at one time it was a white nation. This name, Albania, has followed our people across Europe, right? Albania, at this time, in 500 B.C., contained a region called Caspiana, or Caspii in, in, in the Greek writers, and Caspiana bordered on that district where the Araxis River emptied into the Caspian Sea. Of these three nations, Colchis, Iberia, and Albania, Colchis was an ancient district. It was certainly first settled by some of the Jepethi tribes, and it was known to the Greeks at the earliest times and by their myths even before the Trojan War. Jason and the Argonauts, a story which supposedly took place a couple of generations before the Trojan War, sailed through the Black Sea to Colchis in search of the Golden Fleece. This is where Jason met Medea, the daughter of the king, who ran off with him after helping him steal the fleece from her father. And that name actually may reflect a Greek tradition that relates the Colchians to the Medes. Medea then married Jason in Greece, as the myth generally goes. Herodotus, and, and I have a side story about Colchians, right? Herodotus tells us that the Colchians practice circumcision. However, there appears an odd statement that the Colchians were black and woolly-headed, that's in Herodotus' second book, section 104. This statement by Herodotus, George Rawlinson, his most famous translator, disputed in a footnote. And I have to support George Rawlinson on this one. Herodotus claimed that the Colchians were related to the Egyptians from whence they received their circumcision custom and also called the Egyptians black and woolly-headed. Since Egypt was overrun and ruled for nearly a century by Nubians, from about 750 until about 661 B.C., Herodotus, writing 200 years after that, may well have seen some Egyptians of this sort. He very well may have seen some black and woolly-headed Egyptians. I wouldn't doubt it one bit in 450 B.C. It's very possible. But Herodotus never visited Colchis, and such a thing could not be said of the Colchians. It may be conjectured that Herodotus, if the statement is not an interpolation, only imagined that the Colchians should look like certain so-called Egyptians if they were indeed related. Of course, Herodotus probably wasn't aware of the full history of Egypt. But as Rawlinson states in his footnote, 
The paintings, the monuments, and the mummies show the original Egyptians to be neither black nor woolly-headed. The Colchians may have related themselves to the Egyptians, to the original white Egyptians, Herodotus being ignorant of that. As Rawlinson, oh, okay, while not mentioning this particular statement of Herodotus's, Strabo, and I quote, scoffed at some writers wishing to show forth a kinship between the Colchians and the Egyptians. Strabo obviously did not believe Herodotus, but if the Colchians were white and the Egyptians, well, weren't quite white anymore, I could imagine Strabo scoffing at the idea that some writers would show forth a kinship between the Colchians and the Egyptians. Euripides, a contemporary of Herodotus, and just as acquainted with the region as the historian was, probably more so, in his account of Jason's voyage, placed his, in, in his play Media, described the title character's snow-white neck, a description much more agreeable to the historical and archaeological records. It is possible that the Colchians, if the area was inhabited by deported Israelites in Herodotus' time, did practice circumcision a custom which began among them before the sojourn in Egypt. Yet here the testimony found in Herodotus appears to be tainted, and if not by a later hand, his statements concerning the Colchians appear to be one of his graver errors, while most of his other testimonies are worthy of great respect. Bordering Colchis to the east was Iberia. Strabo calls the Iberians of the Caucasus both neighbors and kinsmen of the Scythians and Sarmatians. And they assemble many tens of thousands, both from their own people and from the Scythians and Sarmatians, whenever anything alarming occurs. That's Strabo's 11th book, chapter 3. Strabo also says that the greater part of Iberia is so well built up in respect to cities and farmsteads that their roofs are tiled and their houses, as well as their marketplaces and other public buildings, are constructed with architectural skill. Anciently, there were two lands named Iberia, and such is certainly no coincidence. The one is the peninsula later known as Spain. It was settled by Hebrew Israelite Phoenicians. The other is this Iberia here in the Caucasus Mountains. It was settled by Hebrew-Israelite Scythians. In the Hebrew language, Hebrews, the word Hebrews, would be Iberi, or as Strong's has it, Ibri, Strong's number 5680. Strabo, unsure why Iberia was called Iberia, imagined that both lands were called as they were from gold mines said to be in each country. Even that would require both people so far apart to have a common word related to gold mines, which is not the case in any of the languages of either region. And so Strabo's conjecture here must be dismissed, but he did imagine why both of these lands so far away from each other were called Iberia. The truth is that they were both settled by Hebrews. 
east of Iberia and reaching to the Caspian Sea was Albania, of which the eastern part, called Caspiana, sat at the mouth of that same Araxes River where the Scythians are placed at the earliest times. Herodotus mentions the Caspians, Book 7, Section 67, and in company with the Bactrians in Xerxes' Persian army in Book 7, Section 86. In Strabo, we have seen the relationship of the Bactrians and Scythians, which has been mentioned here already. Caspiana must be, as Dr. George Moore agrees in his Lost Tribes and the Saxons of the East and the Saxons of the West, that same district mentioned in Ezra 8.17, where it is called Cassitia. In Ezra 8.17, in our Bible, Ezra sent to Cassitia for Levites to come to Jerusalem after the rebuilding of the temple. George Moore wrote this, wrote this very thing in the 18, I, I believe 1860, 1861, when his book was first published. I'm going to quote from that. I have that book in front of me. The copy I have is a reprint. It's published by um, Sacred Truth Ministries, Robert Balakias, who has done us a great favor by reproducing many of these old books. This is from page 111. The Sake, like most of the tribes of Israel, this is George Moore writing in 1860. The Sake, like most of the tribes of Israel, who once inhabited the mountains of Samaria, were a pastoral as well as a warlike people. And the country into which we shall trace the Sake was peculiarly adapted to the wants and habits of such a people, that a large body of Hebrews did proceed northward from Armenia and were resident in the neighborhood of the Caspian Sea, appears probable, as already stated, from the, circum from the circumstance that, and he calls them Jews, right? After the Judeans were permitted to return to Palestine, Ezra sent to the chief of the place, Cassithia, for ministers. It is important to observe that the Caspiani, the Caspians, I'm sorry, are mentioned by Herodotus in connection with the Sake as united tributaries to Darius, the son of Hystaspes. Herodotus, Book 3, Section 93. This Darius was king of Babylon, Media, and Persia. Here we again observe also that the Babylonian title Sake is not vernacular but foreign and, as used by them, simply means the tribes, corresponding to the Greek Pamphylioi. Ezra's message is remarkable and proves that Hebrews were not only dwelling near the Caspian, but observing Hebrew rites there, and were subsisting under a government of their own. And there we have it. That book is available on Christogenia in my um, section on the Hebrew, on, on the relationship between the Hebrew and the English language on the lower right-hand menu as a PDF file.
So while we see that the ancient historians surely made some mistakes in certain places, and, and that's why we always try to get the, the corresponding testimony of, of two or three of them, right, out of the mouths of two or three witnesses. And sometimes they offered fanciful conjectures where the truth of the matter was obscured by time or by language. We have a consistent pattern of testimony among many ancient accounts that the Parthian, the Scythian, and other so-called Indo-European tribes shared a common origin in and around the regions of ancient media, Armenia, and northern Assyria. And from there, soon spread themselves east as far as the borders of India and Tibet, and west to Thrace and the Danube River. And we can tell their descent from the Israelites, not only because they appear in places where the Bible tells us that the Israelites were brought to by the Assyrians, and not only because they fulfilled the many prophecies which foretold of the which were foretold of the Israelites, but also from the testimonies, such as those of Ezra, Ezra eight seventeen, two Ezra's chapter thirteen, verse thirty nine through fifty, which I've just read earlier in this presentation. Josephus's Antiquities, Book eleven, chapter five. And even Paul in Colossians 3.11. And Paul says that he, he's only going to the lost, the dispersed sheep of, the, the, of Israel, the, the people that Christ told them to go to, the people who were being reconciled to God, where Paul says in Colossians 3.11 that one is not Greek and Judean, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but altogether and in all ways anointed, and that's because Paul was talking about Greek Israelites and Judean Israelites, circumcised Israelites and uncircumcised Israelites, barbarian Israelites, and Scythian Israelites. The Scythians, the upper barbarians to whom Josephus wrote his history of the wars of the Judeans. And Paul certainly wrote to no one but the lost Israelites. There was no immense multitude, as Josephus and as Ezra call them. There was no immense multitude of Jews beyond the Euphrates. They weren't there in the time of Josephus. They weren't there in the time of Ezra. They weren't there in 70 AD. They weren't there in 450 BC. There was no immense multitude of Jews beyond the Euphrates or the contemporary historians who describe those regions surely would have noted them. Herodotus wrote right around the time of Ezra, 450, 430 B.C. Diodorus Siculus wrote in 50 B.C. Strabo wrote up until 25 A.D. None of them mention an immense multitude of Jews beyond the Euphrates. They're not there because they're not Jews. The Israelites were there, but they sure as hell aren't Jews. They never were. There was indeed an immense multitude of Scythians in those regions. Under the many names that we see the various Scythian tribes had adopted, such as Parthians, Iberians, Armenians, Massagete. And these were not only 
were strong enough not only to withstand the subjugation attempted by the Persians, but also that a portion of them came to subjugate Persia. The Parthians came to subjugate Persia and held it for 400 years. And they kept Rome from bringing its empire north of the Danube or east of the Euphrates. Josephus is concerned that the Parthians receive an account of the events which resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem, since they and the other upper barbarians, as he calls them, were of his nation, as he states, in the ethnic and not in the geographical sense, should certainly seal our assurance of the certainty of these testimonies. The Scythians, who eventually migrated westward, as the Saxons and the other Germanic tribes surely were the children of Israel, who were carted off by the Assyrians 750 years before Christ. While the other so-called Indo-European, Caucasian, or Aryan tribes were in Europe long before the Celts and the Scythians, it is clear that these also may be traced to ancient Mesopotamia, having come at various times through Palestine, through Anatolia, or even through Egypt at much earlier dates, and settling the coasts of Europe from Greece all the way around to the British Isles and Denmark, and also the Danube, the Tiber, the Po, the Rhone, the Seine, and the other great river valleys of Europe. The tribes of Japheth and the Lydian Shemites were in western Anatolia and southern Europe for nearly 2,000 years before the Israelite exodus, a period which we have virtually no historical and very scant archaeological evidence to tell us about. Our historical accounts began to develop only after the Israelite exodus from Egypt and their settlement to Palestine, Phoenicia, Troy, and Greece. And apparently the Greek records weren't recorded in writing until sometime after that. Not until the 7th century BC did the Greeks start recording their histories in writing. And that was about the same time that the Assyrians were deporting the Israelites from the Levant. Yet all of the ancient records concerning our origin, when I say our, I mean the white Europeans of today, all of our ancient records are ignored or scoffed at by modern anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians. There's a book which I have read, but which I can't recommend, which reflects quite well the debate concerning Indo-European origins among today's academics. It's called In Search of the Indo-Europeans by one J.P. Mallory published in the late 1980s. In this book, Mallory discusses the many prominent modern theories concerning Indo-European origins and the possible locations of some supposed common prehistoric Indo-European homeland. Yet none of the theories presented are anywhere near the truth because none of the theorists even consider Mesopotamia never mind the, the ancient land of Israel, 
as our original homeland. Mallory even spends a few pages dismissing any link to the Hebrews. And to do so, he uses Indo-European and Hebrew words for the numbers 1 through 10 in comparison to somehow prove his point, where 7, the Hebrew word for 7, very similar to the English, is the only one which is remotely similar. Aside from those 10 numbers, I can find Hebrew cognates. I have them listed at Christagenia.org. Hebrew cognates for at least 600 basic English words. 600 basic English words. And that's with a partial knowledge of the Hebrew language. And also many words in German, in Greek, and in Latin. And I did that study long before I studied Greek. But that is well beyond the scope of this discussion here. Perhaps it's a topic for another evening. No academic today could possibly approach the truth of the matter of true of the matter of Indo-European origins without risking his or her career. And who among them would have such nerve or such gumption to challenge the false accounts of history presented to us by the Jews? Any connection of the Scythian peoples to the ancient Israelites or to Mesopotamia is usually ridiculed by a chorus of academic quacks who were simply parroting Jewish propaganda. In earlier times, we were called Caucasians because anthropologists knew of our sojourn through the Caucasus Mountains. Today, our historical accounts are denied, and our academics spend their resources in pursuit of something which does not exist, only to avoid one burning question. If we, Germanic, Celtic, Scandinavian, and related white peoples are indeed the biblical Israelites of yesterday, and we certainly are, then who are these people calling themselves Jews today? Of course, their identity is a falsehood. So they make ours a lie to support their own falsehood. Thank you for listening. I'll be here next Friday night with Hosea chapter 10. Hopefully to finish Hosea. I don't know. I can't promise anything. Praise Yahweh and, and thank you for being here. Good night.